0: Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time. A project of Jofa UK, designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. This episode of Your Torah is sponsored by Yeshivat Maharat, the first institution to ordain women as Orthodox clergy, and where Jofa UK's founder, Dina Brower, is one of 28 students. This June, she will be joining the 19 women already ordained and working in the field of Jewish communal leadership. Hi, my
1: name is Rebecca Blady. Thanks so much to Jofa UK for having me as a guest. In my approach to learning Torah in general and studying Mishnah in particular, I try to never stop at the surface level. It's tempting because the surface level of a text like a Mishnah is never simply surface level. It's loaded with philosophical claims the assumptions and ideas of the society at the time, and, of course, a connection to the divine. And yet, beyond the philosophical, sociological, and theological, I always ask myself, what does this text have to teach me about being human? Today, we're going to talk about the Tractate Orla, and it's my hope that together we'll be able to really derive a message that teaches us something about the human condition— For those who have been listening over the past few weeks, I know it may seem a bit far-fetched to try to apply the practices of an arcane agricultural society to our contemporary lives, but let's give it a try. We'll do three things today. First, we'll gain a deeper understanding of the word orla, the title of our tractate. Second, we'll examine the different themes that emerge from this tractate. Third, I'll read the last Mishnah from this tractate and explain why it speaks to me and how it fits into the themes of our tractate overall. Fourth and finally, I'll sum up and hope to leave you with a practical takeaway. First, let's learn about this word, orla. Orla is actually quite a fascinating word. The origin of this word comes directly from the Bible, where it is mentioned three times. The first mention is in Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 23. The context is about newly planted trees in the land of Israel. The Torah says, When you enter the land and you plant any tree for food, ve'araltem orleto, you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. There, in those Hebrew words, we see the root word orla appear in verb form. The Torah continues, Three years it shall be forbidden for you not to be eaten. In the fourth year, all its fruit shall be set aside for jubilation before God. And only in the fifth year may you use its fruit. This is so that your yield may increase. I am the Lord your God. This verse might be the most obviously relevant to our current section, Zuraim, or seeds, given its focus on what I'll briefly term sacred agriculture. After all, this verse is about just that, agriculture, specifically planting trees. The Torah tells us that in order to be a part of our sacred system of living, trees must remain essentially untouched for the first three years of their lives. The fourth year, too, comes with limits. At this point, regular people still can't eat the fruit. They have to bring it to the temple for sacrificial purposes. So in year five, at long last, we can enjoy the fruits of our not so newly planted trees. It's worth noticing that the Torah does provide a reason for this period of waiting, sacrificing, and then enjoying. The language of, this is so that your yield may increase, tells us that this ritual of Orla is probably part of a larger theological system of reward and punishment in which, if we do something right, God will do right by us, in turn. In this case, if we follow the law and wait three years— Add the fourth year as a year of sacrifice, and have faith that God will provide an even bigger quantity of produce for our fifth year. Then, indeed, that will happen, and the fifth year will provide us with more delicious fruit than we ever dreamed of. Rabbi Shlomo Ephraim Lunchitz, a 17th century rabbi from Prague, known for his Torah commentary, the Kli Yakar offers us an interesting twist on the reason behind this practice of Orla as it's written in this verse in Leviticus. This reason has nothing to do with reward and punishment. The Kliyakar says that we keep Orla in order to remember the creation of the world. Using an idea from Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed, we see that God initiated every element of creation into thoughtful existence on day one. But not everything could emerge on day one. Things took time. Plants of the ground were hidden from being until day three. And even though they bloomed on day three, they couldn't even be seen by the naked eye until day four, the day of the sun, moon, and stars creation. Of course, it's basic plant biology. Plants can't ripen without the sun. So essentially, at the time of creation, Trees and their fruits were hidden and impossible to eat until day four. Day four was their first day of practical, actualized existence. Based on this, we are instructed to keep the mitzvah of Orla in memory of God's creative process. Our plants, too, should be hidden and sealed for a period of three, in our case, years. I'm dwelling on my interpretation of this Torah verse for a reason. Actually, two reasons. First, because this verse serves as the central practical source for the Mishnayot and Tractate Orla, and second, because studying this verse in depth provides us with the first building block toward our definition of Orla, and that is that Orla contains an element of being hidden and sealed. We have two Torah verses to go. Moving slightly backward biblically, our second verse comes from the book of Genesis chapter 17, verse 11. The Torah says, You shall circumcise besar orlatchem, the flesh of your foreskin, and that shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Here, we have the same root word orla used to refer to the ritual of circumcision, traditionally performed for Jewish baby boys on the eighth day of life. This bit known in Hebrew as a brit milah or a bris, is all about covenant, undergoing a physical ritual in order to signify commitment to God. For me, this falls closer to the initial reward and punishment theme we explored a moment ago. Essentially, based on our two verses so far, Orla is about exposing something that had been sealed and covered along a process of deepening our relationship with God. Our last Torah source is Deuteronomy, chapter 10, verse 16. The context is a sermon that Moses is giving the Jewish people toward the conclusion of their 40-year sojourn in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt. Moses says in the name of God, et Cut away the thickness of your hearts and stiffen your necks no more. This verse seems to be asking the Jewish people, metaphorically perhaps, to uncover their hearts and allow the word of God to enter their minds and actions. The Torah imagines this, as our other two examples of fruit trees and brit milah, as an uncovering of something hidden that allows us as human beings to deepen our relationship with the divine and to live a holy life. So there, based on these three Torah sources, we've constructed a basic meaning for the term orla. It's a period of time in which something is hidden, so that by the time it is revealed, it is sacred, and dare I say, one with God. It's almost as if during the three-year period that our Mishnah talks about, God owns our fruit trees, and after this time passes, God restores our ownership of them to us. So with that definition in place, let's check out some of the themes that emerge from Tractate Orla itself. The tractate deals exclusively with the law stipulated in Leviticus, the state of the fruit trees planted by Jews in the land of Israel. Tractate Orla is written in three chapters. The first chapter discusses which kinds of trees are bound by or exempt from the mitzvah, the law, of Orla. For example, in the second Mishnah of this chapter, we learn that, and I quote, At the time that our forefathers came into the land of Israel, and they found a tree already planted, it was exempt from the laws of Orla. If they planted a fruit tree, even though the land had not yet been conquered by Jews, it was subject to the laws of Orla. If one planted a tree for public use, it is subject to the laws of Orla, but Rabbi Yehuda exempts it. If one planted a tree on public property, or if a non-Jew planted a tree, or if a thief planted a tree on property that was not his, or if one planted a tree on a boat, or if a tree grew on its own, all of the above are subject to Orla. So we see that Orla has some very specific limitations, especially with regard to trees being planted in Israel. For those wondering if these rules apply outside of Israel, just stay tuned. We'll get to that when we review chapter 3. But first, let's talk about the themes of the second chapter. Here, we see a bit of crossover with other tractates in our current cycle, as we're learning about how Orla fits into the system of agricultural sacrifices given at the temple. Sacrificial rites are extremely complex and can be tarnished or made impure quite easily if you include the wrong type of foodstuff or material. To illustrate this theme, I'll cite one of my favorite Mishnayot from the second chapter of Orla. It's Mishnah 5, and it reads as follows. A man named Dostai from the village of Yitma was one of the students of Beit Shammai. He said, I received a tradition from Shammai the elder, who said to me, All items that cause leavening, seasoning, an inappropriate mixture of foods that priests cannot consume. If any of these are mixed with truma, the priest's portion, or with orla, the fruit of a tree during its first three years of planting, or with kilayim, a forbidden crossbred plant, and the resulting item contains the volume of an egg, it's impure. Well, there are certainly a lot of if statements and details here. The wonderful thing about Dostai's statement is that it comes in to teach something from the tradition of Shammai in a personal way. The language of the Mishnah invites us to connect to this esoteric tradition, which takes great care to ensure the consistency and purity of temple sacrifices. More interesting, though, is that Dostai's statement in the fifth Mishnah actually contradicts the tradition of Shammai as it's written in the Mishnah immediately preceding it. Dostai's view agrees with the tradition of Hillel, who is somewhat of an intellectual enemy for Shammai. This tells us that Dostai was likely a well-established student and teacher whose opinion deserved to be codified and understood in addition to Shammai's original opinion. In fact, commentaries on the Mishnah assume that our final halacha, the practice as we know it, agrees with Dostai. The third and final chapter of Mishnah Orla deals with the fate of various different items that are made with the forbidden fruits of Orla. The first Mishnah of this chapter perfectly illustrates the stakes of such an error. And I quote, A garment that has been dyed using peels of an orla, the fruit of a tree during the first three years after its planting, must be burnt. If this suspect garment got mixed in with other garments, they must all be burnt, according to Rabbi Meir. The sages say, The suspect garment becomes neutralized, if it is in a pile of 201 other such garments. In other words, if the pile of clothes contains 200 garments not affected by Orla and one part affected by Orla, you can get away with it. Clearly, it takes quite a lot to dismiss our author's concerns about the use of this forbidden fruit. The Mishnah takes the prohibition of Orla so seriously that even its dye should be avoided, even destroyed, at all costs. Now, as promised, the third chapter also contains an interesting piece of information for those of us living outside of Israel. I'll take the opportunity to review this one in a bit more depth. The Mishnah teaches, If there is a doubt about whether or not a certain fruit is orla, in Israel, it is forbidden to benefit from that fruit, and in Syria, it is permitted. And outside the land of Israel, one may go down to the market and buy it, as long as one doesn't see the fruit at the time of its gathering. The Mishnah continues, a vineyard that has vegetables planted in it, rendering them kilayim, a forbidden cross-bred plant, and those vegetables are sold outside of Israel. In Israel, they are forbidden, and in Syria, they are permitted. And outside the land, one can go down to the market and buy them, as long as one doesn't gather them directly. The Mishnah concludes, New wheat is forbidden by law of the Torah everywhere, but Orla is forbidden by traditional law ascribed to Moses, and Kelayim is forbidden by rabbinic law. So it's a packed Mishnah with lots of details. There are two main points that I'll draw out of this for us to think about. First, according to Maimonides, this concept of orla in doubt or suspect orla means that even if it is known that a particular vineyard or field is in its state of orla, in its first three years of being untouchable... If you as a consumer are not aware that your produce comes from this particular place and you're outside of Israel, you can purchase this produce. This is why we don't have to worry tremendously when we're shopping at a grocery store here where I am in the U.S. or in Europe, Australia, or elsewhere in diaspora. Second, I'd like to note the very real difference between our attitude toward this practice outside of Israel versus inside of Israel— In Israel, this law is taken very seriously. What is so special about Israel that trees there absorb this level of strictness? To answer that question, I'll turn to the late Jacob Neusner, a scholar of Judaism and one of the most published authors in history. In his work, Theology in Action, How the Rabbis of the Talmud Present Theology, He makes the claim that the practice of Orla in Israel is meant to rectify the original sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Orla invites us to work on the trait of self-restraint and to do so in our people's sacred homeland. For in the first home God gave us, we failed to sufficiently exercise self-restraint. Allow me to explain a little bit further. Drawing on the narrative of creation, Neusner's read is not unlike that of the Yakar, which we explored earlier as we worked to understand the basic meaning of the word Orla itself. I'm going to quote from Neusner's book. The planting of every tree imposes upon Israel the occasion to meet once more the temptation that the first Adam could not overcome. Israel now recapitulates the temptation of Adam then, but Israel the new Adam, possesses and is possessed by the Torah. By its own action and intention in planting fruit trees, Israel finds itself in a veritable orchard of trees like the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The difference between Adam and Israel? Adam ate the one forbidden fruit, while Israel refrains for a specified plan of time from fruit from all trees. This difference marks what has taken place, which is the regeneration of humanity. Nussner says that the mitzvah of Orla itself bears this very special message. In keeping it, we'll merit a greater yield of not just produce, but of humanity itself. This is why it matters for those in Israel to keep this law with great intention. People living in Israel are... Spiritually speaking, perhaps, replanting a version of the Garden of Eden. And to some extent, we've come full circle. We've learned that Orla, the process of leaving something concealed in order to reveal it, has its origins in the Bible. We've developed a definition for the term that invites us to think about some arcane agricultural rituals in terms of the original creation of the world, and to re-understand the creation story with additional intention. We've studied several Mishnayot from our tractate and explored the types of trees included in Orla, Orla in the context of sacrifice, and what happens to things made with Orla products. To conclude, I'll leave you with a takeaway that I hope takes you a little deeper into the messages of this tractate. For me, it's deeply meaningful to think about the idea of Orla as a restorative practice, I'm not a farmer, but it must be incredibly difficult to watch fruits grow for three years and let them waste away rather than eat them, sell them, or otherwise make use of them. I don't know how a typical human being in our day and age could possibly have hopes for a greater yield while leaving their present yield behind. So for me, it's critical to reframe and see the practice as a part of restoring our world to a more Garden of Eden like state. The Garden of Eden wasn't a supernatural place. Fruit and vegetables grew the same way, were harvested in the same way, and were replanted the same way. People even behaved similarly in the Garden of Eden. They were tempted. They didn't always follow the law to the letter or even listen to the word of God 100%. But what they did have in the Garden of Eden was intimacy. It was a place where communication was simple, where God was present. The Garden of Eden felt original, new, pure of spirit, good with intention. How nice would it be if our world, too, felt originally prepared just for us? If we could assume nothing but good intention from ourselves and our neighbors? If our spirit could be pure, unburdened, and loose? I think Orla teaches us a discipline that invites this type of thinking into our lives— I hope that what we just studied encourages us to think about how to go through a process of preparing our world for greater intimacy with our food, our environment, and our loved ones. And when we go from sealed to revealed in that fifth year finally, we of course deserve to rejoice in our effort and patience in making it happen. And even if you're not keeping Orla in the practical sense, I hope that you too benefit from a process of going from sealed to revealed in whatever spiritual sense works for you. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed studying with me.
0: This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK, in collaboration with women from around the world who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode Find out more by visiting ukjova.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag Your Torah.